Like some malign god, Border Pillar 78 manifested itself in the fields one morning, handing the lush green lands and one gate of the Sri Angala Parmeshwari Sri Munishwarar Temple to Burma. The earlier pillar, the local Tamil community insisted, had been sighted some 80 meters to the east. The Tamils had been compelled to hand over an older temple to Burma after the demarcation of the border in 1964. This time, armed with land records, the community demanded that work to fence the border come to an end till the contentious issue of the border pillar was settled. Empires draw their boundaries with blood and steel, but with strange magical realism and beliefs too. This week, the Home Ministry announced plans to fence 100 kilometers of the 1,643-kilometer Inda-Myanmar border, large parts of it still undemarcated decades after both countries became independent. The government, Home Minister Amit Shah said, is also considering ending the free movement regime. The free movement regime, instituted in 2018, allows members of the hill tribes to cross the border with just a pass instead of a visa and passports. The shuttering down of the border and admission that India's so-called look-east policy is floundering comes amidst rising violence in Manipur. Forces operating around the border town of More, where ethnic Mete have been driven from their homes and lands, have come under sustained fire on multiple occasions, leading to police fatalities. The state's polarised police have hit back, burning homes and shops. The state government claims ethnic Kuki insurgents housed in bases across the border are responsible for the violence. From New Delhi's point of view, the case for closing the border is a strong one. Insurgents fighting the military regime in Myanmar have overrun key positions along the border and not just in Manipur. Kampat, a key town south of More, fell last year, allowing insurgents to choke traffic from Mandalay along the ambitious India-funded Asian Highway No. 1. The insurgents earlier took control of Rikhaudar, sited just across the border from Zorkhathar in Mizoram, the only other legal trading post. India's junta-obsessed policies in Myanmar rested on the assumption that the military was a partner of necessity to fight insurgency and narcotics trafficking. Now, New Delhi is confronted with the real prospect insurgents might be able to operate from safe havens located across the border, from Nagaland to Mizoram and Manipur. Few experts, though, believe ending the free movement regime will help the situation. Fencing even a small part of the border, much of it mountainous and punctuated by dense forest, will take years and monitoring professional weapons and narcotics traffickers through the jungle terrain will be very challenging, even advocates concede. The violence in Manipur, moreover, isn't driven by forces across the border, 
but by the deep ethnic divisions nursed and nurtured by Chief Minister N. Biren Singh. It has little to do with transborder issues between India and Burma. The emphasis on hardening the border might instead only serve to create bitterness among hill communities like the Mizo and Kuki, who see their relationships with kin in Myanmar as key to their identity and culture. Lal Duhoma, Mizoram's chief minister, has said the state government has no power to stop fencing work, but noted that the Mizos do not accept borders imposed by the British. Exactly that claim gave birth to a savage insurgency which climaxed in 1966 with airstrikes on Ezol and a brutal military campaign which included the forced internment of large sections of the population, the burning down of entire villages and mass rape. That's not a road either Mizos or other Indians want to go down again. For centuries before diplomats began using the term, Indians and other Asians actually were looking east. The kings of the great central Thai city of Ayutthaya, which in the 16th century historian Raymond Scoopin and Christopher Yall remind us had a population of 300,000 more than contemporary London, observed Theravada Buddhism as well as Hinduism inherited from the Khmer. They also patronized the mosques and festivals of their Shia Persian expatriate merchants as well as Malays and Cham Muslims from Cambodia. European records from 1683, scholar M. Ismail Marchenkowski notes, reveal an ambassador from Ayutthaya arriving in Persia with, I quote, extremely precious gifts, among them golden vessels, Chinese porcelain and Japanese lacquer work, and furthermore, rare birds of all kinds. The regime of General Fibun Songkram, who ruled from 1938 to 1944 in Thailand, introduced a fascist-inspired ethno-nationalism and tried to stamp out this kind of diversity. Yet the descendants of the Ayutthaya Persians can still be found in Bangkok. Gujarati and Bengali speakers, Tamils and Pashtun all have communities in the city and strung all the way from Assam to Thailand. Large numbers of Sikhs, researcher Swan Singh Kalo has written, also established communities which stretched all the way from India's east to Singapore. Even though migration from India to East Asia diminished after 1947, many communities maintained their presence. Tamils were evacuated from Burma in large numbers ahead of advancing Imperial Japanese troops in 1941, anthropologist Stephanie Rammurthy recorded. The Tamil enclave at More was first established by refugees who made the tough hike across the hills. Even though some Tamils returned to Burma, the large-scale nationalization program of military ruler General Newin led to a second exodus in 1962. The problem of trafficking and criminality built around the implosion of state authority in parts of East Asia isn't just an Indian one. Entire cities have emerged built around cyber scams, gambling and prostitution like the notorious Golden Triangle Special Economic Zone in Laos. 
From being the economic powerhouse some had imagined, the route from Thailand to India's northeast funnels heroin and weapons instead. From the time of Ayutthaya to the British Empire though, Southeast Asia was also home to multi-ethnic trade networks of a very different kind. It's around those ideals that the Look East policy was built. And India shouldn't be giving up just yet. Among the countries that isn't giving up on the region, you see, is China. Instead of spending its resources building easy-to-bypass fences, China has renewed plans to build a railway that connects its southern province of Yunnan with Mandalay. That line would give the superpower reliable access to an Indian Ocean port. There is also a railroad snaking through Laos into Thailand and a growing network of gas pipelines. Where India gambled all on the junta ruling Burma, China proved adroit at cultivating both the generals and insurgent groups. Its infrastructure and gas pipelines are being guarded by insurgents like the Arakan army and it's also got the support of Myanmar's legitimate army. The real question for India is why it's allowed politics to mire strategically important states like Manipur in ethnic conflict, sabotaging our own hopes of completing Asian Highway 1 from Moray and building connectivity all the way to countries like Thailand. Even if the generals in Burma remain in office, it's certain a long war lies ahead. The junta is reported to have sacked five of six brigadiers responsible for defeats in Kokang along the border with China. To the west, growing numbers of regime soldiers are fleeing into India. Like the Sri Angala Parmeshwari temple, India needs to find a way to keep one gate open into Myanmar, even as the crisis unfolds. I'm Praveen Swami and I'm a contributing editor to the print.